Bismillahirrahmanirrahim ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Peace and love. I'm Brother Ali. Thank you for being here. This is the Traveler's Podcast. I turned on the microphone today because I want to share with you something that I've just been so fortunate to be doing for the last 30 years you know, of my life. I just passed the 30th anniversary of me becoming a Muslim. And I became a Muslim right before Ramadan, 30 years ago, 1993. Uh, <laughs> I went into a little house, a tiny little house on Bryant Avenue North in North Minneapolis. I was living on 36 in Fremont at the time. So I was really close. It was just a hop, skip and a jump from where I was. And I didn't realize it at the time. But it was Valentine's Day, which just tickles me every time I think about it, because it makes such sense. It makes such perfect sense, both that I never seem to know when holidays are. I'm not big on birthdays. I miss people's birthday. I'm not tripping on my own birthday most of the time. But it really makes perfect sense that that was the day that because it's been such an affair of love. And I just passed the anniversary of it. Uh, and I was so blessed and fortunate to be able to take my wife and daughters to be in Mecca and in Medina for that for that uh, anniversary, you know. And it was such a beautiful journey. A lot of people know that when I was 13, I saw KRS-One give a lecture. He was my favorite MC at that time, and he still, in a lot of ways, is still the most important artistic figure in my life. If you look at so much of what I've done on stage and in the booth and in my life, it was inspired by this man and inspired in a lot of ways by my vision of him and my my understanding of who he was. I saw him give a lecture and I was 13 years old at Michigan State University. My mom took us because she knew how much I loved KRS-One. And she always was trying to support the the positive things that I was involved in. You know, she died when I was 25 and she didn't get to see. She didn't get to see my success in my career. She also didn't get to see the success in my life. When she died, I was at a really turbulent part of my life and I was at a really turbulent time in our relationship, you know, and, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, her her death kind of marks the time when my life started to change. You know, when I started touring and releasing music and when I met my wife of 20 years, my wife now, that I met on tour, <laughs> that I met on tour. And, um, but she was supportive. You know, she took me to the KRS-One lecture and there was a question and answer part of the lecture I asked KRS a question and asked him if he would sign my book, my copy of Self-Destruction, Stop the Violence. And he brought me on stage and he signed it and he talked to me about Malcolm X. And I read the autobiography of Malcolm X and I'd already heard his name. He was already being celebrated. You know, the I think Spike Lee might have been working on the movie, but you heard his voice sampled. I knew that Malcolm X was the person that in hip hop we looked to as the greatest force for good that had lived amongst us. And so I read the autobiography of Malcolm X. It took a long time because I'm partially blind. 
And then while I, during that period also, the movie came out, Spike Lee's movie came out Thanksgiving, 1992, the end of 92. So between seeing that movie in thank, on Thanksgiving and then I became a Muslim that following uh, Saint, um, uh, Valentine's Day. And reading the book, the autobiography of Malcolm X, there was so much that in my own way I related to but I believed everything that this man was saying. Either I related to it in my own life or through my friends' lives. You know, Malcolm was talking about being in the Midwest in Omaha and in East Lansing. You know, Malcolm lived in East Lansing in the place where KRS was giving this lecture. And, you know, the black community is not big, but those were the people that showed me love. Those are the people that taught me how to live. Those are the people that taught me how to express myself and how to view myself, how to understand myself, how to relate to myself, and made me believe that everything that that seemed like it was going wrong with me was actually a blessing and was actually a gift. And I believe that to this day, even the, the horrible, hard, terrible things that happened. I know they're gifts, and I was taught that even before I became a Muslim. But... The things that Malcolm was going through and the thing, the voice that he was giving were experiences that I was having even either in myself or with my dear friends. And seeing this, th their lives and being close to them and, and, you know, people living in my house and me living in their houses and, and being around their parents and being around it and the, the lives that we shared together, I saw them and I felt them, you know, my friends were harassed by the police and we were walking one day on the beach, this little beach with, with one of my really dear friends, this black brother named Chris. He came to my school at that time and he was one of only a very small group of black people in our school. And we became best friends immediately. And we had a group together and all this stuff. And, <laughs> and we were walking on the beach and we had a radio and he, we were playing F the police. And we were 13 years old and this white man jumped up. I'll never forget this. This grown white man jumped up and he smacked the radio and it fell out and the, the batteries fell all over the place. And he cursed us out, especially Chris. He cursed us out. He was yelling and cursing and threatening us and threatening him. I'll break your radio. I'll break your effing arm. I'll break your freaking face open in a thousand pieces. He's like, don't play this in front of my children. But he, well, I understand, you know, like I have kids now and in Turkey sometimes that maybe they don't know, know what all the words are in rap music. And so I'll be with my daughters and my wife and we're very clearly a religious family. We'll go into a place and they'll be playing really vulgar music. And I don't, I don't know if they know what the, all the words are, but it's like, yeah, that's not, you know, that's, that I don't want to be around that unexpectedly, you know what I'm saying? So I get that part of it, but it's like, this man is jumping up in front of his children, Never mind what they're hearing on a tape on a, you know, playing on a radio of passersby, people that are walking by. But to see their own father jump up and so filled with violent rage towards a 13-year-old boy and threatening him and threatening to physically harm him. 
And he was talking about the police and, you know, the way that people talk about the cop. And I'm saying, this is, this is 1989 at this point, 1990. This is way before Black Lives Matter, George Floyd, you know what I'm saying, Ahmaud Arbery and all of this. This is way before all of this stuff became social media news. This is stuff that we were living at that time. And people have been living since America has been America. So the things that Malcolm talked about, and that's just one of a hundred stories that I have from being, uh, being when I was young. And there was no one that we could tell. There's no one there, you know, there were other adults at the beach and maybe they're not the ones that jumped up and threatened a couple of teenagers, but especially this like 13 year old black boy, who's probably the only black person in sight. And we both yelled back at the man because it's like, we don't know what else to do. You know what I mean? We both yelled back at him. And we collected our things and we left. But it's like no one stood up for us. No one said, hey, maybe you don't like the music that they're playing, but th this is a young, this is a child and you're a grown adult, you know? And, and they couldn't see how what he was physically doing and carrying out and demonstrating for his children was infinitely worse than a protest song about the police. You know, and so reading Malcolm, I was like, this is the most honest person that I've ever heard. And I never felt defensive. I never felt, it's just like, this is true. And I had this deep feeling that I wish I could be what Malcolm is. You know, I'm, I'm reading him talk about the nation of Islam and about what it was for him to be transformed and to be in this community of people and the ways that they would go and, and take people that were struggling at the time that the drug was heroin, on the street drug of choice at that time was heroin. And, you know, we were living in the crack epidemic. And I know people whose parents were addicted to crack, I've seen it. I've seen it and I've been around it and I've smelled it and I've, I've, I've seen the devastation in people's lives. And I know that these are good people. I had friends who, who had, were, were selling drugs and I had friends whose parents were using drugs. And I have a friend who had sex with another friend's mother because she wanted drugs. Like this is destroying lives. And at the time that Malcolm was coming up in the Nation of Islam in the late 50s, they were going to people that were hooked on heroin. And if you've ever known people that are hooked on heroin, to get off of it is a really physical experience. You, you become physically ill. You sweat, you throw up, you, you might even scratch and bleed. It's really hard and it's messy and it's dirty and it's ugly. And you really see the lowest that a human being can experience, the lowest experience, the hardest, most difficult experience while still being alive. It's like being in hell. And they would take people that they were not related to and they would bring them into their house and they would say, you're kicking, you're getting off drugs. Not with a program, not with social media to, to, to show everybody what they were doing. There was no grant. There was no 501c3. It was just like, we love our people and you are better than this. And they would bring people into their homes and they would put them, put them up in a room and they would be there for them while they went through that process. And then they would nurse them back to health with healthy whole food. The Nation of Islam had whole food 
in the early part of, since the 1930s, they had Whole Food. It's the time when Betty Crocker and all this stuff was getting going. And a lot of us didn't learn about the importance of organic Whole Food until the 90s. You know, Dick Gregory was talking about in the 60s, Dr. Sebi, all these people. But it's well known that the, the loudest and most prominent voice in American life talking about this were the black Muslims, were the Honorable Elijah Muhammad, the Nation of Islam, were talking about whole foods. And they would nurse people back to health. And they also had a, a, a striking critique of the government. They also had a striking critique of self. And they worked with people and told the truth. So I'm listening to, I'm reading Malcolm's story and I'm like, I wish I could be what Malcolm is, but I can't. That's for black people and it's right that it's like that. They, they have the, like, that's, that's important. And I, so I, but I, I vowed in myself, I'm going to create whatever version of Malcolm I can be. And so then you get to the end of the book or the end of the movie and Malcolm goes to Hajj. Malcolm goes to Mecca at the time when people from literally all over the world are converging upon this tiny little, these little places, these little holy sites. And there's millions of people in there. And, you know, and it's dangerous. It can feel dangerous. And there are people that have been, you know, there have been people that have been stepped on and trampled and things like that. And Malcolm goes there and he sees a vision and a version of humanity that's broader than what exists in the modern Western world, for lack of a better term, because the Gambia, West Africa is farther West than most of Europe, you know, but the West, okay. The global North, you know, the Northwest. And he sees and experiences that there are more, that there is a more human, more holistic, more connected, more soulful way of life. And so Malcolm comes back and he says, I will no longer uh, be con contained by the American understanding of life, by the modern Western American understanding of life. So he said, I'm also gonna no longer be contained in the nation of Islam. And whatever beefs were going on at that time, that's not my business. I, I know all that stuff very, very well. And trust me, anybody that thinks there's a simple explanation or a, sing, a, sing, a simple condemnation of any one person or any one group of that time, it's more complicated. It's more complex than that, as life usually is. It's more complex than that. And so Malcolm comes back and says, I'm not going to be in the nation of Islam anymore. I'm, I'm going to be part of the global traditional community of Muslims. And I no longer will see myself through or in the world and life through the lens of this society anymore. And he said, I was there with people who in America would be considered white, but they didn't see themselves as white. If they use that language, it's because it was just a description. It was just like, oh, I'm tall or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm this age or I'm that age or I'm from this place. He said they didn't have the same energy. He said in America, when a white man says he's white, he means that he's the boss. <laughs> he said it had a different energy around it. Now, Malcolm continued to work on race in America. So anybody who looks at Malcolm and says, see, Malcolm knew that race wasn't real. Malcolm knew race was a construct, but it's a construct that has been in the roots and the fabric of America since America's been America. 
it's written in the constitution. I'm saying it's in all parts of, of life, public, private, individual, and family and group. Every, I mean, it's just in every part of life. That's not critical race theory to say that. It just is the reality of life. doesn't mean that anybody's inherently bad, but what Malcolm said, so, but Malcolm worked on racism his entire life. So there are some people that'll say, well, Malcolm came back and said, we don't have to worry about race anymore. We're all one family. Malcolm worked diligently on race and talked about race his entire life. But when Malcolm said, I was with people that would be called white and we were family, we were brothers. And he said, if the people in America who have been taught to believe that they are white would be Muslim, if they would study Islam, if they would learn Islam, it would give them a worldview that would be larger, more connected, more human, and also a practice. It's a view, it's a belief system it's all, that, that is more universal than anything else that I've ever encountered. And I do not believe that there's a more universal understanding and belief system. And it also is a life system that orders life. There also is a lived reality. People talk about Islam and they just say, yeah, that's a bunch of rules. And they just think about the rules because they start relating to things in the layer and in the realm of what is physical and what's material. What do I got to do? And what can't I do? Okay, we well, can't do this. Well, why can't I do that? I, I think this thing is good. So I don't believe in Islam because I want to do this thing. Most people that I've encountered say like, that all sounds great. That all looks good, but I won't stop doing this thing that I do. Regardless of what that thing is, they, but it, you know, it's not about whether or not they actually believe. They don't even explore. Most people don't even explore what is the actual true message of this global community of human beings that really do life together in a way that's hard to understand. It might be impossible to understand. You know, there's a there's a dude on YouTube, this Jewish brother, man. I wish I could hug this guy so bad. And if anybody knows him, please tell this guy named Drew Binsky. Drew Binsky. He travels, he goes to every country. This is a Jewish guy, and he loves Islam because he's lived with Muslims. He's done like he travels and he's been with Muslims. And you just see how much he loves Islam. You know what I mean? And I, when I was in Medina, uh, I was with um, a brother named Oase Muhyiddin. If you get to go to Medina, look up Oais Muhyiddin. Uh, he's a student of one of the great sheikhs, Sheikh Muhammad al-Yakubi. Allah preserve him. Uh, <laughs> and he lives in Medina. And he's a, he's a tour guide. And we, I spent my time in Medina with him, with my family. I was really, really blessed to be able to do that. Oais Muhyiddin. So if you, um, Oais saw the brother, uh, Drew Binsky, the Jewish cat, Drew Binsky. And I guess he was in Medina. I wish I could meet this guy. But there are very few people that really look at Islam based on what, are, what is it that the, how, how is it that these people understand reality? And then look at how does, how does Islam, based on that reality, order life? And then even less people get an opportunity, even Muslims, to understand that there also is an, a, a way of addressing the heart 
the soul, the intellect, the ego, the stuff that's going on inside of us to beautify us on the inside. This is a holistic system. And what Malcolm X said is that if the, he had been saying it about black Americans for years. He used to say, they used to say in the nation of Islam, the so-called Negro. And even that language was so revolutionary because at that time, the, the, the children and descendants of Africans who were in America, especially who had gone through this, the slavery experience, were, were saying Negro, the idea of being a Negro. And so the Nation of Islam said the so-called Negro, but that was considered to be fact. And they said the so-called Negro. Just that, that little shift that says, I am not defined by what this society calls me, even if everybody believes it. I'm defined by the source that that brought me into existence and brought the entire universe into existence. That's what defines me. The one that created me defines me. You don't define me, and I can't even define me. I have to be defined by the source that created me. And that source is also the thing that created everybody else. And that's also the source that, that brought everything that exists into existence. It used to not exist. And, and brought everything into being. And so that's what will define me. And that's, very, that's really radical. And so what Malcolm said basically to the, to the children of Europe in America, he basically invited them to the same life system because he experienced it. And he said, if those, if those people would study Islam, basically what he's saying in that moment is... is that the, the, the most intimate thing to a Muslim is their religion, their deen. That's the most intimate thing to a Muslim. And he was inviting the people that he understood to be devils for a long time. He was inviting them to that thing. He's inviting to the most intimate, because he says, you're not going to be doing this for me. You're not going to be necessarily relating to me. You will be relating to the source, to your source. That will be a rehumanizing process for everybody who's been dehumanized. We've all been dehumanized. And what do I mean by that? We, we're we're hyper-focused on what's material. The material of how, the technology of how and what, and disconnected from the meaning, disconnected from why, disconnected from the soul. The society that we live in, we disagree on an intellectual level. So a human being is a soul. A human being is a soul, and a human being is a heart. A human being has a heart. And, and, and these things are all together, but it's, it's important to understand the different functions of what's going on inside of us. A human being is a heart. A heart is having experiences. A soul is connected to the timeless, universal part of who we are. We're, we, in, the, in the scripture, we're taught that we were clay, that we were fashioned in clay. And then the creator breathed into us from the creator's own self. And that breath is what gives us our life. That's our soul. And, and so that breath, and then we are a heart, and then we're also an intellect. And so a human being, and then we're also an ego, and we're going to talk about that. But the, the, the human being is a soul. That's who we are. That's our truest identity. We're a heart that's having experiences. 
We're also an intellect. And on an intellectual level, we're all, we all have to have a framing. And so we talk about what's going on in our society. We all know, for, like even if we're on different sides of the political spectrum, we could be on complete opposite sides. And now there are not just two sides. There's, there's, it's, it's all over the place, man. There's people that believe all type of stuff. What all of us know on a heart level, and I would say on a soul level, is that there is something very wrong with the way that we're existing and the way that we're doing life, the way that we're living in our bodies, the way we're living together, the way we're living in nature, the way we're living as a group of people. We all know something's wrong. Now, what we do about it or the language we put around it, the language environment we frame it in, that's an intellectual thing. And that's important. It's not unimportant. But what's what's also important, so, so you say, well, if we had this law, it would fix it. And you can put in that any law. You can put in that any policy. You can put in that any agenda. You can put in that, and I'm not saying they're all the same, because I have, there's some that I believe are objectively better than others. I, I believe that. But I also know that that's at the level of intellect, and intellect is important, just like the body is important, but there's something else going on at the level of soul. And so we live in a society that does not focus on the soul. We talk about, we, we have this reductionist thing going on where we talk about the mind, and the mind is, is, a, is a very important function of who we are. The mind has to be developed. And the Muslims did not have this split between religion and science. We didn't. The Muslims developed science, the scientific method. We named the stars. Uh, we are the people who understood geometry and geography and astronomy and, uh, and biology and medicine. The word algorithm comes from Islam, but they're also along with science. So this, this idea that science is against religion, I'm sorry, you're talking about the Catholic Church, man. You're talking about modern Western Christianity. And think about the fact that when we talk about, well, these are Western religions, and then we talk about Eastern religions. I'm sorry, Jesus and the prophets of the Bible were not Europeans. Like they weren't Westerners. So the idea of having like a Roman hub of a, of a church based on a, 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 you know, a person who's not from Rome, respectfully, <laughs> like this just, it's very strange. Where the, where the scripture isn't written in that language, and it's very difficult to even access those early texts. It's just different. I'm not, I'm not saying this to disparage anybody's faith tradition. I have deep, profound love and respect. And a lot of people that talk bad about Christianity don't even know Christianity. They've never read St. Thomas Aquinas. If you read St. Thomas Aquinas and you can't find anything for yourself in there, I think there might be a problem. St. Thomas Aquinas is amazing, and there's a lot of Christianity and, and Christians and, and developments that they've given to the world that are very beautiful. Our music wouldn't be our music if it wasn't for gospel music. Like none of the music that we love, rock and roll and jazz and blues and everything else, comes from early gospel music. And before that, African traditional music and Islamic music and all of it in there together. So I'm saying we don't have this, this, this dichotomy between intellect. Islam is a religion that develops the intellect, but the intellect is also not disconnected from the heart and from the soul. 
and from the source of all meaning, from the creator, and from a sense of a deep sense of purpose, it actually flows out of that. And so when the algorithm was developed and when technology was developed, there were Muslims like Imam al-Ghazali, one of the greatest of all time. They say that he was a living proof of Islam. You're going to hear the call for prayer in the background. They say that he was a living proof of Islam, Imam al-Ghazali. And Imam al-Ghazali was a master of the entire Islamic tradition, of all of the Islamic sciences. He wrote a book called The Revival of the Islamic Sciences, bringing them all back to life. That some of our people say, some of our scholars say, if we lost the whole corpus of Islamic literature, we could rebuild it all just with Ihya Ulum the revival of the Islamic sciences. And he's not the only one. You know, there are people that might be listening to this, that their tradition comes more, more is more connected and more identifies with a man named Ibn Taymiyyah, Rahimahullah, Rahimahumah, Allah, Allah Yarhamahumah, Allah be, have mercy on both of them. These are in some ways contrasting ver versions and views of Islam. But Imam al-Ghazali at that time, science was also related to this new kind of secular uh, replacement for religion, which was philosophy. Philosophy is like a secular alternative to religion. And many of the ideologies that we have in the world are secular alternatives to religion and, and to spiritual systems and to wisdom traditions. And so Imam al-Ghazali, for example, he studied philosophy and respected it. And he studied it and he wrote an encyclopedia about all of the philosophy that existed at that time. Most of those European philosophers, when the church came along, the church did away with that philosophy because it was a direct threat to the ideas of the church. And so they burned Socrates, where they burned the works that they had from those great philosophers. And the, But the Muslims saved it. And people like Imam al-Ghazali, he wrote an entire encyclopedia of philosophy, so much so that his critics were saying, Imam al-Ghazali is no longer a, the a Muslim theologian, he's become a philosopher. But after that, he wrote a text called The Incoherence of the Philosophers, where he critiqued them from a theological perspective. And he said, these uh, different ideas, they don't line up with each other. And, and one of the things is that they're not integrated. They're not in harmony. Even philosophers, he said, if you look at the philosophies and the ideas that they have developed, they're not even in harmony with each other. And one of the things about Islam is that every single thing is in harmony. It's all in harmony, even though there's a diversity there's an, there, and Islam allows for a diversity, diversity of theology, diversity of practice, diversity of spiritual uh, uh, aspiration. And so and Imam al-Ghazali said, we are people that develop science, but we should beware of, of things like this algorithm because it's, it's possible for this technology to be divorced from soul. And this technology, if we're not careful, if it's divorced from, uh, from real guidance, if it's divorced from the purpose of, of why we exist, if it's divorced from the knowledge of ourselves, on, a, on the level of our humanity, if it's just the knowledge of how to carry things out, how to do things with more precision, 
but it's divorced from what should we do and why are we doing it and what's the purpose of it all and what are we really trying to achieve and just because we can do something does that mean we should do it he said he warned against technology and and a blind adoption of of uh, elevating technology over, so, you know, t- the technology is the understanding of how to do things, the how. Elevating the how or the what over the why. And the evil that we've experienced, and we all have experienced evil. Evil is a real thing. It's not just an idea. It's not an abstract concept. Evil is an actual reality. The evil that we have experienced comes from developing the how and the what without the soul, developing the ability to carry out our desires without ever thinking about what those desires are. And so when Malcolm said Islam can be the the system and the reality and the worldview and the way of being, the way of living that can rehumanize people, who, and, and heal them who have taught to, who've been taught to see themselves as white and to reconnect them with their humanity. I believed him and I believe him now more than ever. So you say, like, you think about, like, I just took my family uh, to Mecca and Medina and we did, that's a pilgrimage and a pilgrimage is not a vacation. Like we could have taken that same time, that same money, that same, all of that stuff and gone on vacation. And vacations are relaxing, they're lavish, they're, you know, we could go and, and you know, sit on a beach or by a pool or, you know, these resorts, they've got halal resorts in Turkey where everything there is halal and you, you got privacy for men and women, all this stuff. We could go do that. And there's just, you know, food everywhere and there's fun and ways to relax and Turkish baths and massages and facials and haircuts and all of this stuff. We could have done that. Would have been the same amount of money. Instead, we chose to travel and to put ourselves in situations that are very uncomfortable for a lot of reasons. There's a lot of physical challenge. You know, you're walking barefoot on the hard ground and uh, you're in scenarios where it's very crowded and it can feel a little bit chaotic. You know, also the the way that Islam is expressed uh, by the Saudi Arabia in Saudi Arabia is not the understanding of Islam that we have. And so it, that can also be very challenging. You know, those people can be very harsh, like those guards can be very harsh with people. And they were harsh with us. You know, and for and for us, that's re- that's triggering for us. You know, what I'm saying we we come from experiences where we were triggered on the pilgrimage by the people whose job it is to help facilitate the pilgrimage, and that's all I'll say about that at this moment. But why do we choose to do that? And then we've got Ramadan coming up, and that's why I want to. That's that's why I turned the mic on to talk about this. We have Ramadan coming up. I became Muslim right before Ramadan, and. Ramadan is a time where we give up the worldly pleasures of life that are actually lawful for us, that are normally no problem. Ramadan is a month in the Islamic calendar. The Islamic calendar is a lunar calendar. And so in this lunar calendar, and this is a religion, a life, 
It's a worldview. It's a way of being. And it's also a system. It's also a life system that orders life that really reintroduces us to nature and brings it all together. Islam just brings it all together so that I'm, I'm, the way that I understand my life and the seasons of my life is to look at the moon and to be aware of what's going on with the moon at all times. Is, the, is, the moon, is it a new moon? Because every new moon is the beginning of an Islamic month. And then the moon gets larger and larger every night until it gets full. And there are those three nights in the middle of the month where the moon is full. A lot of people fast those three days every month. And then it gets small again. And then we have a new month. And you have to physically go outside and sight the moon. The times of prayer are related to the sun. And so, you know, I have to be aware of when is the sun, of the, the movements of the earth with relation to the sun. And, and five times every single day, my life is going to be ordered around that. So we have, you know, I'm aware of the clock and I'm aware of time and I'm aware of the calendar, the, the Western Gregorian calendar, all that stuff. But what, what my being is relating to and what's actually my relationship with time is based on nature. It's not based on something that people created. Not to mention like, which people are we talking about? You know what I mean? And all people have value, but but what what mindset was behind changing the calendar, changing the clock, so that we're not relating to nature any longer, but we're create we're relating to something that we created, and saying this is what time it is, and also saying zero is going to be Greenwich Mean Time. That's zero. Everyone else's time is is an abstraction of that. Who who says that? Well, the people who were there in that moment said it. That's who. So when you say it's three o'clock, well, what does that mean? So for me, it's not three o'clock. For me, it's Asr time, meaning that it's the time where the sun is in between its zenith and setting, and, and it's in that later part of the day. For me, Asr time, that's what time it is. For me right now, we're at the near the end of the month of Sha'aban. I also know that it's February, like I know that, or March, I'm sorry. I also know that it's March. <laughs> I also know that it's March. I was just thinking about February because of Valentine's Day. But I also know that it's March. I know that. I'm aware of what day it is in the Gregorian world. But in terms of the way that I relate. so And then when I pray, I need to find water. I need to relate to the water that I'm dealing with. I need to be aware of the water and where my water is coming from. Because I can't wash for prayer with unnatural water. I need to, the best thing to do is to go to a lake or a spring or to collect rainwater. That's the best water to wash myself with. And I'm hyper aware of, of, of or just aware. I'm, I'm, I'm extraordinarily aware in this setting where we just think water comes from bottles and, and the tap. But I'm aware because I have to wash in a certain way because I have the joy of washing myself in a certain way. So when the new moon comes, when the new moon is, is cited, it'll be a month in the Islamic calendar called Ramadan. This is the month when the Quran was revealed. This is the month when amazing things have happened. But it's the month where the Muslims will restrict ourselves from the pleasures and the joys of life, even the things that are lawful and good for us. So from the time that you know, not from sunrise, but even before that, from the time when the the sun starts to change the color of the sky, that's, you know, what we call fajr, you know, that early time. Subh, 
like that. That's that's the time in the morning when the when the sun is just starting to change the color of the sky. From that period until sundown, we won't eat or drink anything. No, not even water. There's this meme that goes around every year that's like not even water, and then it'll say white proverb, <laughs> but it's like non-Muslim proverb. Not even water from sun up from from dawn from the time the sky changes until sundown, we will not have a sip of water. We will not eat any food at all. We won't have romantic and sexual uh, uh, relations or activity of any kind. Uh, we won't argue. We won't get angry. We won't use foul language. Uh, we will try also our best to to fast in the eyes and the ears. So we won't listen to things that are taking us away from our truest purpose. We won't look at things that take us away from our truest purpose. We won't say things that aren't related to our truest purpose. You know, we won't be in places that are dedicated to distracting us from the truest purpose of what life is. And it sounds like you're going to die. But let me tell you that the Muslims around the world, even people that don't see themselves as like, they'll, they'll say, I'm a bad Muslim. You know, I do this and I do that. I, you know, I, I, I do all the, the things that you're not supposed to do. I don't pray, I, you know, whatever. Those people, you, most of them, almost all of them fast during the month of Ramadan. You see people that are like, well, you know, I'm, I'm addicted to whatever substances I'm using to self-medicate and to escape and, you know, to whatever. I'm addicted. I can't, I can't go without them. Muslims who are addicted to that stuff year round, the overwhelming majority of them can abstain from that stuff even for those 30 days. And we look forward to it. Like, I can't tell you how much we love the month of Ramadan. And like, man, I'm, I'm a fat person. You know this about me. <laughs> I'm struggling. You know what I'm saying? And like, we look forward to Ramadan. I love it so much that I'm already sad. It's not even here yet. I'm already like, can cry at the fact that Ramadan's going to leave. And like, why? Because it's the time of freedom of the soul, liberation of the soul, where the soul becomes liberated. Liberated from what? So we're, we've got a soul, we are a soul, and we're a heart, and, you know, and also our, our intellect, but then also all of us have an ego. I mean, think about the fact that this is what this consumer-driven, material-driven, soulless in a lot of ways culture is telling us to focus on. They, this, is what this is what they're keeping from us, you know, except for when art breaks through. You know, I would say for people that don't believe, say, oh, I don't believe in anything. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm not religious. I'm not spirit. I don't believe in anything. If you believe, if you love art and if you love culture and if you go to therapy and if you believe in mindfulness and like anything that's not about consuming and, and, and empower and, and like power in the material world, anything that's about something bigger than that or anything that's about something unseen you know what I'm saying? Being true. And actually, if you feel, have a sense that like that stuff is more true and more important than the material. I would rather be hungry for to not take food out of, out of a, a, another person's mouth because that's the kind of person I want to be. That's not materialism. That's spiritual. 
That's 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 from the unseen. Anytime that I that I'll put my own interest second to somebody else because it's right and because it feels right and it feels good. That's not that's not from, you know, that that's that's coming from somewhere spiritual. And so we know that. We can hear somebody go through all of the same uh, you know, patterns and formulas of creating hip hop music, for example. A lot of us hear hip hop music and it's like, yeah, there's a beat and it's on beat and it's made on the same, it's made on the, the drum machine or the, the, you know, the program or the keyboard or whatever. It's made on the same stuff that my favorite music is made on. It's the same tempo. It's the same, it's recorded in the same equipment and maybe even in the same facilities. It's, you know, the, they're singing in harmony. Uh, they're rapping to the beat. They're on beat. The words rhyme, but there's no soul in that. And I don't feel it. Like that's spiritual. That's coming on the level of, of, of meaning. That there's an unseen but still very tangible reality there where it's like you can go through the motions, but if the spirit isn't there, then it's almost that the fact that it's counterfeit actually makes it repulsive to me. It repulses me. You hear fake hip-hop music. You know what I'm saying? Counterfeit anything you know, the, uh, fake anything, the, you know, when somebody fakes something that we know the truth about and the truth is actually something that's related to who we are and to the beauty and the sweetness and the joy of life. It's like, yeah, you went through all of the outward motions of doing that thing, but it's counterfeit. And so it actually repulses me because of my love of the real. Well, that real is Allah. Allah is al-haq, the real, the true. That's what we're talking about. Most of the time when people say, I don't believe in God, if, when I sit down and talk to them and ask them, what do you mean by God? They're talking about something that the Muslims would say, that's not God. If you say, well, I believe in the universe, okay, do you believe in the molecules of the universe? Do you believe that Jupiter actually gave you the love and the meaning in your life? Or are you talking about something out there that's not defined you know, something that, that is the, the, the unseen force behind all of this stuff. Because the Muslims, when we say la ilaha illallah, it means that nothing is worthy of worship, that those other things that are physical and that are, that those things are not worthy of worship. Those things are not Allah. Like the, the idea of a person sitting on a chair or like, when you know, all of these concepts that people have. When you say they don't believe in God, it's like, that's what the our creed starts there. You're right. Those things aren't God. Those things are false. And the, 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 meaning, behind all, the meaning behind it all, the thing that brought all of it into existence, the, all of the physical things that happened, what's the spark that was there before the physical things that caused it? Because for something to cause it, it had to have already existed. And that thing has to be uh, eternal without beginning and eternal without end. Everything in the, in the physical world is limited. It has a beginning and an end. It's finite. And it came from something finite. So something infinite is the cause behind all of that. That infinite thing that can't be defined, that's not physical, that doesn't belong to any one person, that isn't, that isn't in space, that isn't relegated to space and time. And it, it, that thing is what we're talking about, the source of it all. 
is what gives us our life, is what brought us into being, the source of all meaning, the source of all beauty, the one that's bringing all this into being. And so (laughs) the idea of Ramadan is that we're created like this. We're created with the soul. We're created with the heart and the heart is having experience. We're created with the intellect. All of these things have to be integrated, integrated together so that we can be in a person of integrity. And, but then we have an ego and the ego is what is destroying us from within. If you think about all of the things that are good for us, most of them are dislike, are, are displ- are, aren't pleasurable to our ego. If we're able to, and we have to subordinate our ego in order to be able to do those things. And once you do them, and once you have experiential knowledge of them, that's when they start to become sweet and beautiful. But it's like, is exercise sweet and beautiful? To me, it wasn't for most of my life, up until the last couple of years that I've been living here. And I've had the opportunity to have a great trainer and to eat better food and all this kind of stuff. It's like, why would I want to pick up stuff if I don't need to? Why would I want to run? Usually if I'm running and sweating, it means that I'm in danger. Why would I put myself in danger intentionally? That sucks. Why would I do that? That's what the ego is saying. That's what the ego is telling me, that that the things that are best for me, consistency, all the things that all these motivational speakers tell us, do it consistently, do it every day, Uh, you know, create a routine for yourself. When you feel lazy, find a way to fight through that laziness, find a way to fight through all of this stuff, to be able to, to, to suppress the ego long enough to do what's good for us, because the things that are good for us and best for us are displeasurable to us until we have a a level of experiential knowledge that's beyond that. And that experiential knowledge is what starts to, to, to empower us. So now it's, I'm still learning it. I'm still learning that to, for me to go run and sweat and lift stuff and, and you know, do these, these motions to me that are really uncomfortable. It's really uncomfortable for me to do lunges, for example. You know what I'm saying? I got strong legs because I've been carrying around a fat body for all these years. Like my legs are, I'm one of those, I'm that type of overweight where like it's, it's all in my upper body because I walk a lot and like I am driven and motivated. I've learned from experiential knowledge that if I, if I just get up and go do the thing that I'm supposed to do, I've, I've learned, but it took me, you know, all of these years of, of, of having this knowledge to, to, to acquire the knowledge that like for me to get up and go do the thing that I say that I want to do in terms of my art, in terms of community stuff, in terms of all that. So I'll go walk and do the thing. So my legs are strong, but for me do, doing lunges is really tough because it's like, that's dealing with my balance. And that's a particular movement that my body's not accustomed to. So that's really hard. And when I start doing it, I hate it. And then once I get in the pattern of doing it, I start loving it because I start realizing that the things that my ego hates are the best things for me. You know, and then if something disrupts that, then I then I I I, I get out of that routine and then my ego starts to come back in and it starts saying, don't go do that, or you'll go do that later. You just got to do this other thing first. And then, I, then I'm back in a place where I, now I haven't been there in a month. You know what I'm saying? So I, now I got to go through that process again and go learn it again. And I keep on doing it and doing it and doing it and doing it. 
until it eventually starts to, that knowledge starts to become stronger inside me than my laziness. And, and I start, so, so something that's happening on a level that's beyond the ego, that's deeper than the ego, it's not going to be easy to get to, but I'm going to have to suppress that ego. Also, the things that are enjoyable to us are killing us, are bad for us. Like we all know that sugar is bad for us. We all know that intoxicants are bad for us. We have all of these things where like, well, actually, if you, you know, actually it's got these medical benefits. Okay, we know that it's better to not intentionally light things on fire and ingest them. We know that that, yes, there is the, yes, it feels good. And yeah, if you're looking for certain things, we know it's better to not smoke cigarettes on a regular basis. You know what I'm saying? Like there, there, there are ceremonies with tobacco and things like that. That's not the same as smoking Newports and Camels and whatever else. It's not the same thing. And yeah, you can be like, well, American spirits or so-and-so. Okay, cool. But the things that are yummy to us, the things that are delicious to us, the things that are pleasurable to us are killing us. And all of us have something that we struggle with. It doesn't matter who you are. You find people that have disciplined their ego in a hundred ways. Their ego is getting them in some other way. You got people that would do incredible things, but they, but they can't get over that sex addiction. They can't get over that gambling addiction. They can't get over that, that, uh, 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 that, that, that substance abuse. They can't get over it. They got something that's, that even though they've worked through all, every single one of us is dealing with that. And having knowledge of self is, is the understanding that my ego is my greatest enemy. Nothing oppresses me like my ego's hold on me. And we've got, in the Islamic tradition, we have four enemies, two outside and two inside. The four enemies on the out, the four enemies, the two on the outside are evil. And like I said, evil is a reality. We believe in shaitan, we believe in the devil, we believe that, that evil is uh, an actual thing. Now, evil is very weak in reality because evil's only ability is to suggest to us. Evil can't force us to do anything. And evil is just a deprivation of guidance. It's a deprivation of gratitude. It's a deprivation of beauty. It's a deprivation of love. And it never announces itself. It always comes in the form of counterfeit beauty. That's why you say like, well, uh, you know, these people do this horrible stuff in the name of religion. Of course they do. Evil doesn't announce itself because your human nature would say, your fitra, what we call fitra, your 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 real truest nature would repel evil if it announced itself. It doesn't announce itself. It comes in the name of something good. False religion comes in the name of spirituality. False organizing comes in the name of freedom. False, there's false everything. Anything you're into, there's a false version of that that's destroyed people. And it does. It destroys people. I've been in I've been around false religious situations. And I've been harmed by it and I've seen people hurt by it. So I know that, and, and I feel like I had to go through that. I, I mean, I, was, I believed in this situation that I was in. You know, they say like you drank the Kool-Aid and that comes from a, a, a false religious group. In this situation, I wasn't drinking the Kool-Aid. I was the Kool-Aid man. I was busting through doors. <laughs> oh yeah, like I was busting through walls. Like I was, I was out, I believed in this situation that I was in. And then I was forced 
to deal with the other side of what I was experiencing. And I think I needed to do it because prior to that, I had only been around sincere religious people. And I'm not saying this to condemn any one person or whatever, but so it was important for me to go through that. There are false, you know, there's falsehood. And so evil doesn't announce itself. That's what I'm saying. Evil, shaitan, the devil, it doesn't announce itself. On the outward, we have that force of evil and that evil is just deprivation. So if you put a little bit of light into the darkness, it does away with that evil. You know what I'm saying? It can be defeated. It can be defeated easily. We just got to put a little joy in it. Just got to put a little love in it, put a little soul in it. Just put some soul in it and watch how evil flees from it. But, but it has to be acknowledged as such. And it takes guidance to do that. And the ego isn't going to know the difference. That's the thing about why, is it, why do we need a spiritual system? Why do we need rules? Why do we need teachers? Why do we need... Because our, we, we oftentimes don't know the difference between what's coming from my soul, what's coming from my heart, what's coming from my intellect, and what's coming from my ego. My ego will make the whack horrible, uh, uh, harmful things that I do, my ego will convince my intellect that they're actually good. And every evil that has existed in the world, there has been a science around it saying that it's actually good. And this is the trouble or the challenge that we have as human beings. So the evil that we have on the outside, the enemies we have on the outside, one is the actual just force and reality of evil. The other is the attachment to the illusory material world, to the, the fleeting material world. This idea that we have as part of the human condition, it's just part of our reality, that like we look at the things in the material world and they actually start to become prioritized to us to where they're in our heart. Doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with living a dignified life. Doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with being successful or being prosperous or being good at something or being rewarded for something. But it means that what our teachers tell us is that those things might be in our hand and there's nothing wrong with them being in our hand. And there's nothing wrong with desiring even to be prosperous or to be successful. But the problem comes when those things start to get into our heart. And you see also that those yummy things, those like beautiful, nice trinkets in the world, you start to see when we talk about those are the external enemies. Our internal enemies are our ego and also our desires, our lower desires for the things that are, that are yummy and enticing in the physical world. And so those things are in in uh, alignment with each other. Those things are in cahoots. Like that's the real conspiracy that's going on. That's the real access of, of evil that's going on is my ego in its relationship to my desires. Because my desires, if, they're, if I subjugate my ego, if I discipline my ego, then all of my desires can actually become powerful. So anger in and of itself shouldn't be killed, but anger needs to be disciplined. If I'm angry in the, in the right, with the right subject, to the right degree, at the right time, and in the right way, then you actually have a vigilant warrior. You, have, you actually have a samurai at that point. You have uh, someone who's courageous when it's time to be, but it needs to be disciplined. And, and Imam al-Ghazali said that anger needs to be disciplined the same way a hunting dog does. 
So you have a hunting dog that could destroy, but if you train it, it can actually be very precise. The same thing with our desire to, to procreate, you know what I'm saying? The, the, with, with our desire to be intimate, with our des, uh, desire to be sexual, that desire in and of itself is a beautiful thing. But then you have all of these times where people have the, the relationship between the ego saying, I deserve whatever thing is yummy to me. Whatever thing is desirable to me, I deserve to have it. So then you got, you know, people grabbing people, you know, doing things against their will, doing things that are harmful, doing things that are, are harmful, that, that destroy lives in the name of intimacy, in the name of love. So you have this, this kind of access of, of, of corresponding kind of conspiracies that bring about the evil that comes in, into the world through a heart that's out of whack, that's out of balance, through a heart that's not guided, that's not ordered, an internal reality inside of a human being. So we got our desires and our ego together on the inside, working directly in correspondence with uh, the 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 illusory yummy trinkets that are in the physical world, the material world, that aren't evil in and of themselves, and then you have actual ego that are on the outside. So the the way to really truly be liberated, and not only liberated from ourselves, but think about the oppression that's in the world. Think about any type of oppression and any type of mass scale wrongdoing. What drives those things are an uh, uh, an an ego that's out of control and a desire for things that are in a human being that's out of control for excess. Like what drove the, the mid-Atlantic slave trade? What drove the slavery that, that, that built the modern world? A desire for sugar, an excessive desire for sugar. So like you can plant sugar and you can harvest sugar and nobody's got to be harmed by it. But what happened is that we have a desire for sugar, a demand for sugar, a need for sugar that's excessive. And why? It's because people were making rum. So people's desire for excessive, for excess, is what creates the, the demand. And like, how are we going to fill that demand? And that's where the slave system comes. That's where this modern slavery system comes into play. And then also for cotton. Why? Because I want more clothes than what I can actually wear and wash. Most pre-modern people had a, only a few outfits of clothes. So during, during the week or during mo regular days, they would have maybe two or three outfits of clothes. They would wear one and wash and dry the other one. And that's it. That's how they live. They live a simple life. It's enough for me to wear one set of clothes and I've got another set of clothes. And then everybody had uh, their ceremonial clothes that were for certain times. You know, what we call in our society, they used to call Sunday best or the, the clothes that you wear to the holiday or the clothes that you wear to the festival or the clothes that you wear for, the, for a celebration. They would have a special set of clothes for that. So people are living life with maybe four outfits of clothes but then people start desiring something that's way beyond that, way beyond what we ever need. And so this desire for excess in clothing is what drove the cotton industry to have to produce cotton that's actually harmful for the environment because there's nothing harmful. Everything is integrated. And if we take only what we need, then we can do that without oppressing 
the 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 soil without oppressing the water without oppressing the land without oppressing the crops and the natural ecosystems around them if we only take what we need there was also a desire for tobacco because like i said people use tobacco for certain ceremonies but they wouldn't smoke tobacco every day for leisure or for a part of their all of the these you know so now we see that there's a huge demand for cobalt if you haven't had a chance to read it's really heartbreaking to to look into the demand for cobalt for the batteries in our devices but we all feel like we have to have these devices and i'm recording into one of them and i'm looking at another one right now I'm sitting here in a room full of devices but I'm saying that demand for, for cobalt for cobalt, is creating a type of slavery in the world that we're all participating in, a demand for obs- excess, excess in cobalt, a demand for excessive chocolate, like looking at the, you know, what's, what's going on, how most of the chocolate in the world is sourced because of the fact that we have a demand for excess, the excess that we desire and that we demand upon, that we insist upon, is what creates the evil systems that are in the world. The, 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 all of the sexual violence in the world, all of the various different types of violence in the world, they come into the world because of hearts that are out of balance, that are heart, out of alignment. And how do hearts get aligned? Not by something that they're going to choose on their own. A lot of the time, Because the things that we desire, the things that seem yummy to us, we actually have to be educated. And in order to be educated, for our souls to be educated, there's got to be a certain type of discipline of our ego. We've got to do things that we don't want to do, and we have to be restricted from things that we want to do. And And by restricting those things, that's when the soul actually starts to come to life. You start noticing, like even for people like me, the you know what I'm saying that 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 I struggle with food. You know, I, I do, and I do think there's something beautiful though about the fact that my struggles, like I'm such a like live out loud person, and I especially was like this more. I'm learning to be quiet and learning to focus on my own reality more and more, and be more self aware, rather than just push it all out into the world and create content out of it, but. There's something very fitting about the fact that you see my challenge in my physical appearance. <laughs> like a lot of people have these physical challenges, but they're able to hide them because they don't show up and they don't show, they're not on display. And the particular challenge that I have is on display. And there's something to me about that, about that, that, uh, that I actually appreciate that it's, 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 Anybody can look at me and see how I'm doing with that certain part of, of, of my struggle with my own ego, with disciplining my own ego, you know, and this is how evil comes into the world. So Ramadan is the opportunity to restrain ourselves from things that are not bad in and of themselves. That food is a good thing, but most of us wrestle with the inability to regulate our own food. There's nothing wrong with drinking water. There's nothing wrong or, or, or whatever. And, and there's nothing wrong with being intimate. These are all actually really beautiful things. And Islam is a religion that really promotes intimacy. 
But when we look at a, at a spiritual system and say, or, or a religion, you know, this idea about religion that we have, that a lot of people have, is like, well, they're just trying to tell me what to do because they're trying to control me. You know, one of the beautiful things about the Islamic tradition, after the first generation, you know, the, the religious teachers and guides and the political leaders are not the same people. And so this idea of when people say organized religion, there's not a living human being that as a Muslim, I have to obey them completely, except for my, you know, I've got to obey my parents. You know what I'm saying? My, there are people that have rights over me. My parents have rights over me. The orphans have rights over me. Like there's orphans in every society. We don't even know. Most of us don't even know where they are or how to access them. Part of Islamic life is you have to seek out orphans and you have to be with them and you have to give to them and you have to hold their hand and rub their head and talk to them and smile with them and, and, and give them gifts and give them treats and make them laugh. Like that's part of our, that's part of, that's a necessary part of this religion that most people don't even know about. And we think about orphans as being children, but we have elderly orphans in the West because we don't take care of our elders. But the elders in our, in our life have rights over us. They don't have the right to abuse us, but they have the right to be loved, to be looked after, to be cared for. Our, our spouses have rights over us. Our children have rights over us. Before anybody was talking about environmentalism, 1400 years ago, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, talked about the rights that water has, the rights that the air has, the rights that land has, the right that animals have. Animals have had rights in this, in this religion since the very beginning. The rights that employees have, the rights that servants have, the rights that women have, the rights that children have. Our children have rights. We're not allowed to backbite our children. We're not allowed to go and say, yeah, you know, my kid does this and this and this thing. Even if they're little children, we're not allowed to dishonor our children. We can't do that in this religion. So all, these, all of these realities come together. And having the ability to, or being given this gift of the opportunity to, to discipline our ego, and to, to even acknowledge the fact that I am a physical being and my physical being has rights. Our bodies have rights over us. So if a person is pregnant or nursing or sick or traveling or elderly, if the fast is going to harm a person, then that person doesn't fast. Uh, women, when they're on their cycles, they don't have to fast. They don't have to pray. They don't have those kind of religious obligations. You know what I mean? Uh, in terms of the physical, formal prayer, any human being can, can convene and talk to and ask from and praise and remember and talk about and sing about and re reflect on and instruct people on the relationship with the divine at all times. So that, that type of prayer. But there's a, a very specific prayer talking about the formal standing and bowing and prostrating at specific times. Women who are on their cycle don't have to, to do that and they don't have to fast. And if a person is traveling or if they're sick or something like that, those people don't fast. You, if you are, will be well and whole later, you make the days up later. And if you can't, then you feed people. I had a dear friend named Khalil 
Shahid, who's a really dear friend of mine. And uh, Allah have mercy on him. We were on Hajj together 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And he had cancer. And this was a brother that just loved people. And he lived in the Bay Area where there's a lot of unhoused people. And he had to take medication because he had cancer. And so he couldn't fast anymore. And he loved to fast. We all love to fast. And I'll get to that in a second. But we all love fasting. <laughs> we all love fasting. We'd be like, I can't wait for Ramadan. My man, I'm a Rahman, the comedian. <laughs> I mean, Rahman said, you know you can start fasting before Ramadan comes if you want to. And we also read a 30th of the Quran every day. And some people do way more than that. But the, the minimum is reading a 30th of the Quran every day so that by the end of the month, you've read the whole Quran again and had like this reset and this, re, uh, this, this reunion with the Quran. He said, you know, you can do that now if you want to. <laughs> Most people don't do it because it's like, man, I, there's something about that thing that, that it forces me to be the best, my, best version of myself talk about that in a second but Khalil Shahid was had cancer and he had met, had to take medication so he couldn't fast and he said I used to be so sad brother this is my man you know what I'm saying grew up in Chicago as jazz musician played with all of the greats he played with Jimi Hendrix and all these amazing people and Stevie Wonder and Donnie Hathaway and Buddy Miles and on down the line and he said yeah man I, I missed fasting but so then what he would do since he couldn't fast, is he would actually go out. So you can just provide food for somebody who doesn't have it. But he would actually go out and find people on the block, like on the street, that looked like they were unhoused and might be hungry. And he would, and he had a nice car, and he would roll down his window in his in this in this nice case jazz musician, roll down his window, say blood. <laughs> I talking about say blood. I was fixing to go get something to eat, man. You want to eat with you want? Would you uh you want to eat together? And he would put people in his car and he would take them to, to all these different restaurants and he would sit and, and eat a meal with them and talk to them and share life with them and, and ask them about their experiences. And he said, man, this is some of the best Ramadans I've ever had have been since I've been doing it like this. Really beautiful, you know, very, very incredible. So from sunup to, from not sunup, but from dawn until sundown. And I'm, I'm saying this because I'm saying to my friends who are not Muslim, this is something you can try. This is something you're welcome to do. And without any expectations from me and without any pressure from me about like, I'm trying to convert you. But, but when you love something as much as I love, as much as we love this thing that's difficult and challenging for us, and you know what a beautiful gift it is, you want to share it with the people you care about. And also when you know that it's not easy to learn about, like think about the fact that you heard my music and you probably heard a bunch of other underground hip hop music that was never on the radio. So whether we're talking about Immortal Technique or Saw Rock or The Coup or um, Living Legends or, you know, whatever kind of underground music that you know that people don't know about. It could be the Dead Kennedys. It could be whatever. Some music that, that you know is amazing that like people don't even know. And I can't wait to share it with them. And someone shared it with you. 
And you're like, yo, I know. I know if you if you only listen to the hip hop that's on the radio, you might have a certain opinion of hip hop. But man, you, you've you never even heard MF Doom before. You've never heard Little Brother before. You've never heard Aesop Rock before. Wait till I get to show you this. And people think about, oh man, this underground rap is going to be no fun. It's going to be hard to listen to. It's going to mess up my party. It's going to be, you know, I'm going to have to read all kind of books and, you know, they're going to be rhyming stethoscope with, with you know, the, the the refreshing dope and the crest, you know, and it's like, man, I know you think that, but wait till you hear this stuff, man. Wait till you hear little brother. Wait till you hear atmosphere. Wait till you hear, you know what I'm saying? Rhapsody. Wait till you hear J. Cole. Wait till you hear some of this underground stuff and just give it a chance and, and sit with it for a minute. And people will be like, well, how do I find it? It's like, yeah, that's part of the journey. That's part of the beauty of it is how to find it. Because if you just go online and search Islam, the stuff that you're going to find is not going to be stuff that speaks to me. I'm going to look and say like, yeah, those people are Muslim, but that's not that doesn't represent my relationship with this beautiful tradition. Most of the people that you'll find. So I'm saying this to say that the same way that these things are shared and it opens up a whole new world, we love to share. We love to share this thing with people. And it's also very, very intimate. The same way that Malcolm X was inviting the same white people that told him he couldn't be a lawyer, that he had to be a carpenter. The same white people that, that killed his father. The same white people that raped his grandmother. The same white people that uh, put him in prison. The same white people who he was inviting them to Islam, which is the most intimate thing to a Muslim. It matters more to us than our identity. It matters more to us than anything else that we have in this life, seen or unseen. The most important thing in the world to me is that there is no God. There's no, there are no gods. Your God, my God, his God. Well, which God are you talking about? We're talking about the source of all things that willed everything into being that makes me one with even someone that I'm seeing in this moment as my enemy that makes me one with everything in the cosmos, that makes me one with everything that's been created, that makes me connected on a level that I don't even understand in my eternal reality with everything and everyone. There's nothing worthy of worth except for that one. And that's where our ultimate allegiance is going to be. And that this person, the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, who is the culmination, the proof, the, the, the culmination of all of the wise sages and prophets and reminders and, and messengers that came to every single people throughout time. 124,000 of them is what our teachers tell us. Throughout time, speaking all languages, and that all of these spiritual systems have been, and these spiritual reminders and teachers have all been from the same lineage, pointing to the same reality. This is in our book. This is in our tradition. So you say like, okay, well, you know, the, the Bible, they just stole that. There's a story of a great flood that came from these people, and it came from these people, and it came from these people. So that proves it's not true. Not to us, it doesn't. To us, it's like that. Yes, these are these are stories of the. These are part of the human story that have been revealed in different languages to different people throughout time. This, this they're the same truths, and and in our being, we know that we have the right 
to, we have the right to know and commune with and to reconnect with the source of all things. And the good that motivates all people, they're all driven. We're all being driven by a desire to reconnect with that. That is love itself. That's happiness itself. It's freedom itself. Amir Suleiman says that I've, I've come to learn that the same thing that draws a fiend to the pipe is the same thing that draws a human being to the light, the love of love. And our teachers tell us that everything that a human being is seeking is that, that, they're all, that all of us are actually seeking that same source and we get off track. And so what this tradition is about and what all these wisdom traditions, these spiritual traditions are about, coming back, turning back, getting back, recommitting, reconnecting, reconfirming. To, and, and getting to a place where we become liberated from our own lower selves and discipline our lower selves, not to kill it. We're not trying to kill our desires. We're not trying to kill our anger. We're not trying to kill our hunger. We're not trying to kill our aspiration. We're, we're not trying to kill those desires. That's part of what gives us life. That's part of what makes us alive. We're not trying to kill that stuff, but it's got to be disciplined. It's got to be marksman-like in, in, in what it attempts to do, because we all go off course. And our going off course doesn't condemn us. It doesn't damn us. I know that some religious people in all traditions talk like that. The basis of the relationship between the creation and the creator is to remember, to reconnect. And also there is a type of acknowledging our own deficiency because we do have deficiencies. All of, and, and, and when you say that, it's like, well, these are limiting beliefs. No, it's the reality. Is there anybody? Like if we say that we don't have deficiency, that's condemning everybody because everybody's messed up. Everybody's done things that are out of line, that are completely contradictory to what our higher purpose is, to what our biggest aspirations are, to what are our deepest commitments are in life. We've all done things and we all do them on a regular basis. And there are different degrees. There are different degrees of, of, of wrong. There are different degrees of sins. There are different degrees of contradictions. There are different degrees. But the more we elevate and the more we grow, the more the, the tiniest infractions, we see how huge they actually are. The Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, there's, there's a, a, a chapter in the Quran where the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, was going to speak to the leaders of society and wanted to give them the message of Islam, which is and was a, liber a, a liberating message. He was giving it to, he wanted to give it to leaders and a blind person came and was asking him questions. And the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, made a face. All he did is make a face. He didn't even say anything. This blind person couldn't even see the face that he was making. And Allah revealed Quran to him, about him, for all of us to be recorded for the rest of human history. That you made this face, but this is a person who's coming to seek you. So like all of us, and the higher we get, the more our infractions and the more our contradictions, we realize how big they actually are. A moment of ingratitude for our life is actually huge. It's a huge, it's a huge uh, sin. It just is. 
being ungrateful for our lives and we didn't create ourselves for one breath, for one blinking of an eye. But we start with something. We start with bigger stuff that, that's more tangible. And then we travel and we seek and we keep coming back. And Allah says, and Allah says to us, if you didn't make mistakes, I would wipe you out and replace you with, with a creation that did make mistakes and then came back and, and returned to me and came back to me and recommitted to me and repented to me and reconnected with me and got centered and got focused again. Like that's what all of these practices are about. So this month of Ramadan is coming and this is why we love it so much for me. I love Ramadan so much because it is the t one time of the year where I actually am able to find like the, the conviction to live my highest purpose or at least the closest to it that I get. That's the closest to it that I fly is during Ramadan, you know? And like this why I like, man, when I say these things, I, you know, God help me if I have any kind of like sense of like being better than anybody else. And we all wrestle with that. Like it's, it's true. And being a self-righteous religious person is ugly. It's so ugly. And I've been it. I have. And it's one of the main things that repels people from religion. And we have to work. We have to. And it's just a trick of the ego because the ego says, don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't get up. Don't go work out. Don't go work out. Don't go work out. Don't go work out. And if you're able to get around the ego on that side of things and go work out, then the ego is like, you're better than the people that don't work out. Take a, put, take a selfie, take a, a video of yourself working out and put it online and tell other people why they should work out. It's just the same ego playing the same tricks. It's, none spe it's not special. Like religious people and their self-righteousness and our self-righteousness, we're not special. You know what I'm saying? How many times have we have we actually overcome our ego to do something good and then turn around and tell other people why they're supposed to do it instead of just being grateful that like I don't know how I outsmarted my ego how did I out how did I defeat my ego when we talk about Islam the word Islam means surrendering and disciplining the ego so that we can submit to our truest purpose because we fight against our truest purpose. We all do. Anybody giving any advice, anybody's advice, anybody we go to for advice, whether it's somebody telling you how to make the best content online or somebody telling you how to get in shape or how all advice comes down to this is how you outsmart your lowest, weakest, wackest, corniest self so that you can actually do what's good for you because something deep, very powerful and strong on the level of impulse and urge is going to fight against what's best for us and it's going to fight for things and push us for things and put a battery in our back to drive us towards things that destroy us and destroy other people. It's inside of us. And so these aren't limiting beliefs. There are limiting beliefs. That, that, and I have a lot of them. You know what I'm saying? Like for years I told myself, well, 
I, without realizing I was telling myself, I'm not going to try as hard as some of the other artists that I judge for going mainstream. They try harder than me because I think because I'm albino and because I'm fat and because people, most people don't like most people, whatever, there are limiting beliefs. But the idea that we need correction, that we need guidance, that we need to be humble, that we need to discipline our egos, that's not one of them. That's just the truth about who we are. And the the idea that, well, we're all gods. That's not what the that's not what the Quran is telling us. You know, the reality is that if we if by gods we mean the the the, the we the potential to be the greatest of created things, yes, we have that potential. We do have that potential. Do we mean that we're animated? Our soul is the breath of the divine? Yes. Are we the representative? Can we become the representative of the divine in creation? Absolutely. The, the good that we see in each other, the life force we see in each other, are we actually seeing and experiencing the divine? Of course, yes. But but the, the tricky thing about identifying as gods or goddesses is that it denies a very real part of who we are. And that part of who we are is our own proclivity to do wrong to ourselves we oppress ourselves, we oppress others, we harm ourselves, we wrong ourselves, and we wrong others. And the way that we deal with that is to reconnect with the source of it all. And that's where that repentance starts, and that repair, and that reconnection. And in Islam, we don't have to go tell a, a person. There's not a human being that tells, there's not a, another person. Now, we do have guides. We do have teachers. I have teachers that I would, there are people in my life that I would do whatever, I would take whatever advice they give me. I really would, you know. And, but that's my choice. That's not part, of, I, 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 that's, I'm not obligated to do that in this religion. That's my choice. And if if my heart ever changes, that could, that could change too. And so I say this to say, what what we believe and what we're experiencing, and, you know. And I was given this religion as a gift, and dude, I just I can't, I'm overwhelmed with gratitude for it. But I I want it for you. It's not me trying to convert you or trying to like whatever. Your relationship with the divine is your relationship. I get it. I, I, there's a lot of dear friends of mine that have been around me for years. They're not Muslim. It doesn't change anything for I love them. But there's something there that it, at least is worth being explored. We talk about the the challenges in the world. I believe that this system and this way of being, this way of seeing, this way of interacting, this way of healing, this way of expanding, this way of transforming into, it's like, what am I transforming into? To my truest self. Islam is a religion, Islam is Deen al-Fitrah, the religion or the, the, the tradition or the life system and the way of seeing and being 
of our truest nature, of our truest, highest, most self-actualized potential. That this is the religion that doesn't change us into something else. And let me say, just in case somebody is thinking like, well, if I become a Muslim, I'm going to have to get weird. I don't want to get weird. <laughs> I don't want to have to grow a beard and change my name and start dressing weird and start saying all this, these, these fun, I don't want to have to start making noises I don't make. I don't want to have to change my name. I don't want to change the way I dress. I don't want to change the, have to start looking this way and all this other stuff. For the most part, you don't have to. You don't have to change your name. You don't have to be a different ethnic group than what you are. You don't have to be take on some culture other than what you are. If you're native, you know what I'm saying, and you're you like you be a you can be your native self with your native culture and your native traditions and your native language and your native ancestors and your native. If anything, Islam is going to increase all of those things. Now there are some of them that will start to look and say, well. You know, it, or any other culture. There are things in every culture that we see like, okay, this part I'm not going to take. This part I'm, I'm maybe going to see as not part of a, a part of my culture that I do want to continue with. And most of the time it's going to be intoxicants and things like that. But I will say that you don't have to change. You don't have to change your name. You don't have to take on a different culture. If You know what I'm saying? Whatever culture you have, this is going to make you love your culture even more. And wherever Islam went, it elevated the culture of the people. And, but I'll say also that once you become Muslim, you're gonna start to, you, you probably will start desiring a lot of this stuff. You don't have to speak Arabic to be Muslim. You have to recite the first, a couple chapters of the Quran in, in Arabic, but you don't have to speak Arabic. You never have to learn Arabic. You know what I'm saying? You never have to change your dress, the way you dress. Now, modesty is a big part of dress for women and men. You know what I'm saying? And so you start like, look at them, look at, look at, look at uh, Dr. Sherman Jackson and look at Obedullah Evans. Look how they dress. Now, those are Muslim scholars that are completely following the code of Islam and they're really fly and they're very classically American the way they dress. You know what I'm saying? And then look at Yasin Bey. You know what I'm saying? Yasin Bey is wearing Rick Owens and all this kind of like fly, like super Ava Virgil, you know what I'm saying? Rest in peace. Vir I didn't know Virgil, but he's, he's rocking that type of stuff. You know what I mean? Fashion stuff. But look at, look at Yasin Bey. The way that he dresses is completely Islamic and is completely fashionable to where the fashion blogs, Versace and them are like, will you please come uh, come and, and uh, allow us to dress you, please, sir. But look at, what he, look at what they designed for him. It's a coat that goes down to his knees. His head is covered. He's wearing long sleeves. He's dressed modestly. He's not showing off his body. And, and Yasin Bey is a gorgeous man. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> but there's people from all different walks of life you know what I'm saying? Men and women that like look at how they're dressing. It's the best of their culture. So you're not going to lose your culture. But what it also is going to do is connect you with cultures to, so that you start to, to have a kinship with other things that you might fall in love with Arabic because it, it makes you understand English even better. You might fall in love with certain things. You might, you might want to start rocking things a certain way. You might want to start moving a certain way. You might want to have one of these kind of names. You got to square it with your, with your parents, though. 
You know what I'm saying? If your parents, the the only thing that removes your parents right over you is if they're abusing you. If they're abusing you, it's different. You know, if they're molesting you, it's different. If they're if they're actually abusing you, then it's different. You know, uh, for me to be called Ali, it was a it was a, a a journey between me and my parents. When I first said I wanted to change my name, it felt like a rejection to my mother. She was like, "Well, that's a slap in the face." And I said, "What well, didn't mean to slap you in the face?" And the more we talked about it, the more I talked about this idea of whiteness that I'm like, I do not resonate with this idea. You know, it was an, it was a, you know, part of me becoming a Muslim was like, I believe what Malcolm said. I believe what Malcolm X said about this religion, you know? And when I listen to people like my, like Rezma Menachem talk about a, a lived embodied building of culture and building of, you know, these things, that's what Islam is. He doesn't, I don't think he sees it that way. And I love him. I admire him. I would never argue with him. I never disrespect him. He's also my elder, even if it's only by a few years. He's got certain rights over me. Also for, for him as a black man and a black body to be talking about racism in America, he's the expert. He's going to know things in his body. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Despite, uh, uh, even before you get to the fact that he's a, he's a genius with the way he articulates things. And also all of his training and things like that. But what I'm saying is all of the things that Rezma is talking about and pointing to, those things are in Islam. So I say this to say, to, to, to offer this to my friend, to anybody that cares about me. If there's anything that you see of good in me, it's, it's, it's Islam. And if there's anything that I have good to offer you, it's Islam. And I know that that might sound crazy if you see, if even if you go online, you know. So, okay, so people say, well, well, what do I do? What are the books I read? Well, there's a number of translations of the Quran. The Quran is obviously the, the scripture of Islam. There's one by M.A.S. Abdel Halim. I like that one. M.A.S. Abdel Halim. It's, if you get the physical copy, it's blue and white. You can also get it on Kindle and Audible. I like that one. Uh, there's a there's a book called the Study Quran, uh, where if, if you want to, you know, if you just want to pick up the Quran and read it, M A S Abdel Halim is a really good one. There, there are others too, and I'm not saying authoritatively like this is the one, but people ask me all the time. And then there's a book called the Study Quran, where it's like a reference guide if you want to learn get more into well, like what might these verses mean. That's one. That's a really great resource. That's a really great resource. It's a number of scholars that work together. There is also diversity in Islamic thought. So there are scholars that disagree with those scholars and there's room for that. But that's a good one if you want to say, well, what does this verse mean? Or I want to understand what's the story behind this. That's one of the sources is the study Quran and it's in English. But there are other books too. There's a book about the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, called Revelation. And in the book called Revelation, it's actually like set up like a textbook. It shows you the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and the different verses that were revealed at different times during that life. There's another one called Muhammad, His Life According to Earliest Sources by Martin Lings. That's another one that I like. Again, there are all types of books on these subjects that you can read. But I would say, at the very least, read books that were written by Muslims. You know, the West 
is very afraid of Islam because it is the greatest, it's a threat to them and not in a violent sense. The West, the modern West is more violent. They've killed more. We, I'm born into that tradition. We've killed more people than anybody in, in the collective human history before us. When you look at like what the modern West have, has done, it's more violent and it's killed more people than anybody else. People say religion is the cause of all violence. Mm. Those atomic bombs and these huge world wars, higher death count than anybody else. So it's not that, that Islam is a threat because of violence. That's what they say. But it's a threat because it's an alternative way of seeing and being that does not seek permission from the West. And it doesn't seek permission from whoever they are. <laughs> it doesn't seek permission. It's a, it's a radical way of seeing self and life and community and the world and being in the world that's, that is challenging because it's the most well-preserved alternative. That's why it's a threat. So if you read stuff written by non-Muslims about Islam and about Muslims, you're going to read something that's antagonistic and it's a lie. It's called Orient, Orientalism. It's an antagonistic lie. So if you want to learn something, like don't learn about hip hop through the critics of hip hop, learn about it from the people who were there. Learn about it from the people who were there when it was created. Talk to, you know, Grandmaster Kaz and talk to Joe Conzo and talk to Lady Pink and talk to the people who were there. Learn about it from the people who 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 are central to it. So uh, there, are, I know there are other books that you can read. I also really recommend a book called "The Alchemy of Happiness" by Imam Al Ghazali, that talks about the purpose of life, the the types of things that we've been talking about today. There are people that you can that speak in the English language that teach in the English language. Again, these are the teachers that I like. Uh, Dr. Sherman Jackson, Imam Zaid Shakur, Dr. Ingrid Madsen, uh, Imam Omar Suleiman, um, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, um, Dr. Abdul Hakim Murad, uh, uh, um, Ubaidullah Evans, uh, Mustafa Briggs, uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Osiefa, O-S-I-E-F-A, Yahya Rodis. Uh, Sheikh Yahya Rodis, Sheikh Abdul Karim Yahya, Dr. Omar Farouk Abdullah is my personal teacher. Uh, Sheikh Aisha Prime, Anse Tamara Gray. These are people from all different walks of life. Some of the people I just mentioned are white Americans from Kansas. Some of the people that I mentioned are black Americans from Philly and in the south side of Chicago and Florida and you know, Nigeria and England and, you know, some of them are men, some of them are women. There's a, a wide variety of different ages. You can really learn Islam and, and start to explore Islam from a wide variety of people. And there is diversity in the Muslim world as well that is is understood, you know, and it's there and it's it's a reality. <clears throat> And there is a, a version and a vision of Islam that became prominent in Saudi Arabia in the last few hundred years. It's in the later part of the Islamic tradition, and it's very well funded, and it's very popular in the inner city. It's very popular online. And 
you know, without disparaging anybody, if you go online, this is the version. And it's a, it's a vision of Islam that doesn't recognize the validity of the other expressions and understandings of Islam. So it's going to say the Islamic ruling on, on this issue is this. And it doesn't acknowledge uh, the variety of scholarship and that they've come to different understandings and different conclusions on a lot of issues in theology, in practice, in spirituality, all this stuff. And so you're going to see a lot. You're going to see a lot of stuff saying, this is the Islamic opinion about this thing and everybody else is wrong. You know, and it's very, at least at the outset, it's, it's really attractive because it takes the guesswork and the kind of like internal struggling and stirring out of a lot of this stuff. So it feels really definitive and easy and plug and play, you know. And so that approach to Islam is one that's out there and it's really popular. And like I said, it's really popular online. It makes great social media content. There are a lot of the people that you'll see speaking very authoritatively are going to be coming from that perspective. And it's also really popular in the inner city because of the fact that like a lot of times we come from these really extreme environments and so we want, we just want answers. Just tell me what is the most authentic this. I don't want to hear somebody uh, wrestling and, uh, you, you know, you, you, using their own intellect and conversing with all these different things. I just want to know the answer. What's the most authentic answer, even if it's rigid? And so a lot of what you'll find, if you look, is going to be that perspective and that expression of Islam. And those people are not more practicing um, those people are not more adherent to the religion. Their scholarship is not more serious. They're even, they're, you know, they're not more authentic and they're not more serious and they're not more pious and they're not more religious. They're just not. They see themselves that way and they are part of our community. And there's people that study and teach in that lineage that are better than me. And, the, and a lot of them I love. A lot of the Muslims that I love, that's, the, that's the, the understanding and the filter of Islam that they have been raised in. And so that's how they understand the religion and that's what it is. And for a long time, those people have been in power in Saudi Arabia. And so if you go to school in Mecca or in Medina in, particularly, in particular, and when you go to Saudi Arabia, they're going to say, you know, this is how Islam has to be. And... You know, it's and it's a very vastly different from the Ottomans, from the Ottoman Empire. And I live in Istanbul, Turkey. And part of why I live in Istanbul is because the understanding and approach of Islam that speaks to me and my family is this other understanding. Um, and that's also the one that was that was the most popular in the the whole of the Muslim world up until just a few hundred years ago. So I said a lot, man, how long have I been talking? I don't even know. Um, but in any case, it's Ramadan. And the same way that you are invited to do yoga, even if you're not of that religion, you're invited to fast with us. And, um, and you're invited and you're loved. And, uh, you know, when you love something, and you love someone and you know someone doesn't have access to that thing, you want to offer it to them. And so all of my friends listening to this that are not Muslim, I love Islam and I love you. And, and I would love for you to be able to benefit from this thing. 
I believe it more than anything in the world. I also love my people. I also love culture. I also love art. I also love humanity. I also love knowledge. I also love a lot of people that I don't agree with. You know what I'm saying? And this religion is, is one that knows that not everybody's going to believe in Islam. Not everybody's going to believe in God and Allah. Not everybody's going to believe that Muhammad وسلم, peace be upon him, is a prophet. I don't need you to believe that, even though it's the thing that I believe the most. As long as you don't disrespect it, I don't need you to believe that Muhammad is the last messenger of God. But if you disrespect the Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, or his wives or his companions or the, you know, the scholars of the people, this, yeah. if you disrespect them, it's going to be hard for me to really be cool with you. But, it, but as long as you're respectful and you're loving and you have good intentions, I can love you and I can work with you and I can live with you and I can share life with you. And any time that, 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 that we intersect, we're, then we're partners in that. You know, there's people on this podcast that I don't agree with their understanding of Islam. I don't agree with their worldview in general. I don't agree with their understanding of spirituality at all. Some people... I, but like I'm here to talk about what we the good we have in common. And that's enough for me. You know, so not everybody's gonna believe it's not, and then not all Muslims are gonna see it the way that I see it. My particular understanding of Islam is that there were multiple valid ways of understanding. So there are groups of 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 Muslims that I don't understand. I, like their theology to me, I don't see it as valid Islamic theology. And they don't see mine as valid Islamic theology. And that's fine. It's understood. We don't have to have uniformity to have unity. You know what I'm saying? So there are groups, there are whole groups of Muslims that I love, that I'm around all the time, that I, that I, I admire them. I admire them as people. I admire their state. I admire their practice. You know what I'm saying? I, I see some of them as like a better person than me. That's very plausible and possible. Even though in, in, in these modern times, it's like, if you don't agree with me and if you don't affirm what I believe, then you hate me and we're enemies. And that's not how we are. There are people that don't believe any of the most important things to me. And then there are people that have different beliefs about Islam that I don't see as valid, but they are Muslim. And then there's also within uh, traditional Islamic orthodoxy, like Sunni mainstream Islamic orthodoxy, there's a variety of opinions on th on theology, on practice, and on spirituality. That like they're not always going to be the same, but they don't have to be the same. Like that's okay. That's that's fine. I have no problem with that, and I don't need to convert those people to what I'm to what I'm on and to what I believe. You know. It's also the case that when you love something and you love someone, you want them to at least have access to it. So I guess I, I turned on the mic today to say that Ramadan is coming and um, you're invited. You're invited and I'm invited. And I love to explore it together. That's what the Travelers Podcast is about. I was supposed to tell you who we're brought to you by. We're brought to you by Zakat Foundation and um, zakat.org or Zakat US on social media. Uh, they're the ones that have sponsored this podcast from day one. And then also we have a partnership with uh, with an organization, with a company, a corporation called BetterHelp. And BetterHelp is an online therapy platform 
that if you have difficult, if you want to go to therapy and you have difficulty accessing it, you can do it on betterhelp.com. If you do betterhelp.com slash travelers, um, you get a discount and we get, um, we get a bonus on this side too, to help the work that we do on the podcast. Uh, yeah, special thanks to everybody that helps with this podcast. Uh, the podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly, BK1. That's my partner. And, um, and, and Travelers Media and the Travelers Podcast and all of the things that we're doing in terms of releasing music and the podcast and the learning series that we do and all of the, the, the merch and all this stuff. That's who, uh, that's who I'm partnering with for the work that I'm doing in this phase of my life and career. And a uh, special thanks to everybody who listens to the podcast, who's contributed in any way. Um, like and share and subscribe, do all of that stuff. Social media is super corny and it's getting worse and worse all the time. Go to brotherali.com, sign the mailing list, please. And thank you. Uh, go to the section called join and subscribe on some level, you know what I'm saying? Because that's really what's going to keep this thing going. And uh, we love you and we appreciate you and we wish you well. And for those that are fasting for Ramadan, we pray that we get to greet the guest of Ramadan and that we honor the guest of Ramadan and that we really are able to benefit from the ocean without a shore of the benefits of fasting and reciting and uh, and praying and giving and serving and loving and connecting and reflecting and all of the good of this month of Ramadan. We love you all. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.